0: All right, we're in Genesis 38 this morning. And I suppose if someone was making a movie of this chapter in the Bible, it would be rated R. That's why I didn't read it publicly this morning because of children in the congregation uh, who some of this stuff would be above their heads. But the Bible is uh, certainly very uh, clear in its description of human beings when they do things that aren't right. And that is one of the reasons why we can say the Bible's inspired by God. It's not afraid of putting uh, bad events and bad things in the Word of God. And so as we come before the Bible today in Genesis 38, we're looking at a situation where, uh, once again, God's program, God's plan could be thwarted by the sinful actions of humanity. And we found that one of the major motifs of the book of Genesis is God's providential protection of his program of blessing when the failures and foibles of his people threaten it. We observed this when Abraham and Sarah tried to fulfill God's promise to them through an affair with Hagar. We saw it in Isaac and Rebekah's favoritism toward their different sons. It was also true in the life of Jacob as he attempted to obtain God's blessing by deceitful means. And the same motif presented itself as Joseph's brothers sold him into Egypt to prevent his dreams from coming true. In each situation, the Lord overcame these human attempts to either thwart his will Or fulfill it by human means. And our story today unveils the corruption of Judah's family in Canaan which threatened to assimilate Israel and the promised seed into the worldly culture of the day. So he now stands as the son of promise but his venture into the world of Canaan threatens the extinction of his tribal heritage. And Judah has already presented himself as a callous man who hated his brother, orchestrated his enslavement, and deceived his father into believing that Joseph was dead. His character further sinks in Canaan, where he proves to be sensuous, hypocritical, and one who shirks duty and responsibility." Now, the Lord in this story selects unusual means to correct this corrupt behavior. His agent is Tamar, whom he uses to preserve the program and ensure the progression of the Messianic line. And through her action, God will expose Judah's corruption and begin the process of renewing his character. Now Canaan represents the worldly culture from which Jacob and his family were to be separate. And when Judah chose to separate from the godly line, he was further corrupted and he put God's promise and program in jeopardy. The world is no less corrupt today than it was when this story took place. It still represents a danger to the believer and the church, And if one is not willing to be separated from the world, he or she will be corrupted by it and become a hindrance to God's purposes. So let's ask God's blessing on his word today. Our Heavenly Father, we are again thankful for the truth of your word, that it does reveal our sinfulness, and Lord shows us how that is to be dealt with. And as we see again this story about Judah and his family in Canaan, uh, our hearts are, are partially saddened, but Lord, we know that very easily we can go down that road ourselves and that we have many, many sins that uh, needed to be forgiven, that our character might be changed. And Lord, we're thankful for the various means that you use to bring us to the place where we need to be where we can grow and develop in Christ. And so help us to learn from this story some important truths about your purpose in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, now we're going to go through this story kind of paragraph by paragraph today. And the first scene shows us the corruption of Judah and his family in Canaan. And verse 1, we're told, it came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. So Judah departs into the corrupt world of Canaan. He departed from his brothers. And that verb to depart means to go down, to descend, to decline, to sink down. And we found in our study in Genesis that geographical direction may have spiritual implications. For instance, when Abraham went down in Egypt without God's direction, he went down spiritually. Uh, we have found that a movement to the east geographically is a movement away from God. We saw that in the life of Cain, of Nimrod, of Lot, and of Esau. It's indicating their movement away from God and his people. When Judah decided to descend from the heights of Hebron to the lowlands of the Canaanites in the region of Adulam he continued down the wrong road of life his character already questionable is going to deteriorate further during this sojourn now why does he do this well the text does not tell us why was he rejecting his position of primogenitor in the family Was he trying to escape the dysfunction of his family? Was he feeling at all guilty about what he and his brothers had done to Joseph and tried to escape that? Or was he just desiring to be on his own and go off into the world, like his sister Dinah had done years earlier? At any rate, this departure moved him away from the chosen family of God soon after the incident of Joseph being sold into slavery. And the time period this chapter covers is really the next 20 or 22 years of his life and the downward progression of his family in corrupt pagan culture. He also turns aside to a man named Hira, who according to verse 20 becomes his friend. And the verb to visit here means to turn aside, perhaps suggesting Judah's turning aside from the path of God's blessing that he should have desired. He turned aside from his family to the worldly culture of the day and chose to befriend its people rather than God's chosen people. And the same temptation may confront us today as well. We always have to be leery of the pull of the world. Now, in the next few verses, we see uh, Judah becomes married. Uh, This also is a kind of a corrupt relationship. So let's take a look here. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua, and he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was, of, uh, he was at Kazab when she bore him. So here we have Judah as he comes to this place in Canaan. Uh, another departure from family tradition occurs. Both Isaac and Jacob took wives from the family of Terah, not the women, of Canaan. Now, as time moved forward, perhaps this would have been acceptable if the wife would be drawn into the culture of Israel and worship the true God. However, we usually find that the opposite is the case. Judah was living in the culture of corruption and was drawn sensuously to one of the women there and as we look at the language here, we, we, we have the language that has overtones of lust in other passages of Genesis. He saw this woman. He took her as wife. He went into her. And this is indicative of the just the sensuous relationship, legitimate, of course, in marriage, but not with a foreign woman. Uh, and... And then she conceived, she conceived, she conceived. The whole emphasis is on that part of the relationship and nothing else. And from this union, there come three sons. Two of these three sons prove to be deeply corrupt. Now, as we look further here, again, we're reminded of a truth in Scripture. God's people marrying others in the family of God is a theme that runs through the Bible, and when that pattern is broken, it complicates married life. So let's see some of the complications brought on by Judah's corruption. In verses 6 to 10, we see the wickedness of his sons. Then Judah Took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So we're introduced really to the heroine of the story. He takes a wife for his oldest son. Her heritage is, <clears throat> excuse me, is not given here, which makes some believe that she was not a Canaanite. However, where else would a wife have come from? It seems that since Judah took a wife from Canaan, he would also select a wife from there for his son. So I think that she was very likely a Canaanite as well. But this makes her ultimate actions more impressive. Her attachment to the family of Judah and her desire to um, have an heir for the family name uh, is much stronger than her attachment to Canaan. Now, as the story goes on, though, Ur is found to be very wicked in verse 7, wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. Now, that, uh, that particular word there, we don't know specifically what this sin was, but the same word is used of the people slain in the flood And the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were wicked before the Lord. So it depicts evil action that deserves the judgment of God. Now, Tamar is then given to Onan, the brother of Ur, in verse 8. And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. We would would think that strange today. You don't have that kind of a a law or responsibility in modern times. But this is what was uh, known as the law of leveret marriage in that day. If a man died childless, it became the duty of his brother to marry his wife, to raise a child for him so that the family name would not be obliterated. And if there was no brother, then the nearest of kin performed the duty. This is what was going on in the story of Ruth and Boaz. So later it becomes incorporated into God's law uh, many years after this, but it was already intact at the time of uh, Judah's life. So Uh, this is what Judah wants Onan to do so that Ur will have an heir and, uh, you know, the family name will carry on through him. However, in verse 9, we find that Onan doesn't want to follow through with his responsibility. Onan knew that the heir would not be his. So he's thinking in terms of this. Well, Uh, Another person is going to get the birthright. Another person is going to get another share of the estate, and uh, that's going to make things worse for me. So he doesn't want that to happen. He is selfish, and he's not going to obey his father, and he's not going to uh, be involved in the uh, custom of the land that would honor his brother in this way. So it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife for their marriage relationship that he emitted on the ground lest he should give an heir to his brother. Now this was not a one-time action. The, the word when there means Whenever. So this man uh, was all for the conjugal relationship, but he was not for carrying out his responsibility to raise an heir for his brother, and he made it impossible for Tamar to have a child. His action pre- prevented conception. And this displeased the Lord, so the Lord killed him as well. And these are the first two instances in the Bible where it specifically states that the Lord put to death wicked individuals. So in the Lord's eyes, that's how bad it was. Now, that's one of the complications. Another one is what Judah next says, or next promises really, to Tamar, which is really deceitful in nature. In verse 11, we read, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Sheila is grown. For he said, now when it says he said this, he didn't say it out loud, he was thinking it. He said in his mind, lest he also die like his brothers, and Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. So what was he afraid of? He was afraid that if he gave his third son, uh, who apparently was not yet old enough, uh, to be married, uh, that he would die like his brothers. So he's not thinking, well, the Lord killed these children of mine because they were so wicked. He's thinking that, well, uh, there's something wrong with Tamar. All this, uh, uh problem that has developed, uh, with the death of my sons is somehow her fault. Uh, she's unlucky. Uh, Or somehow it's it's her fault that my sons have died. And, of course, that's the way a lot of parents think today, isn't it? Um, My child can't do anything wrong. My child can't be at fault. It's got to be somebody else's uh, uh, problem. Now, furthermore, Jacob calls upon Tamar to return to her father's house. Now, that's unusual because he... Uh she married into his family, so he really has the responsibility to take care of her as a widow, but he wants to get rid of her, although what he says betroths her to Sheila. She's not able to go home and marry another Canaanite man. She has to uh, uh live with her father's family until Sheila is grown. Meanwhile, uh he doesn't have the expense of taking care of her. So again, some more not-so-great things are coming out in the character of Judah. And his actions now have put Tamar in a very difficult situation. His promise to her was really dishonest and deceitful. Now what is she going to do as the story progresses? And we see beginning in the next uh, scene verse 12 to 23, this desperate act on Tamar's part. And we see, first of all, the, the circumstances that develop and the reason that she puts this plan into action. In verse 12, now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. So this is one thing that really kind of needed to, to take place. Uh, for Judah to be unmarried in an unmarried state. And isn't it interesting here that as Judah goes his own direction, he uh, leaves his family, he loses his two oldest sons in death and then his wife. Death surrounds this man, Judah, as he's really out of God's will at this time. So when we go out of God's will, we we begin to complicate our own lives and we, we can bring a lot of sorrow into it. So his wife dies. And again, it's interesting, his wife is not even mentioned by name. So that really gives her no place of honor. And we also see then the time of year that it was. Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah. He and his friend Hira the Adulamai. So it was the time of the year where the sheep were being sheared. This was a uh, celebratory time, a time where there was a lot of partying going on, so to speak. And uh, uh, for pagan culture, it also would have involved a time of worshiping the false gods and thanking the false gods for. Um, all the uh, uh, good things, the pro- produce coming in, and involved in that would be immoral activity. All right, so Judah is without a wife. Judah is going up to the, the place where his folks are, are shearing the sheep. He's going to be involved in some of these activities, and along the way, uh, this event begins to develop. Now, in verse 13, it, uh, all this is told Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself and sat in an open place where which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown and she was not given him as a wife. So she comes to the place now, probably... A year or two later, nothing's happened. She knows this young man is a, a eligible marriageable age now. She knows that Judah has promised to give her to him in marriage to raise up uh, a son for her and for the family. But that hasn't happened. And now she sees an opportunity where she can take things into her own hands. She's desperate and she, she comes together with this plan to deceive Judah and carry out the Leverate situation through him. So desperate times sometimes call for desperate measures. She has the legal right to an heir for her first husband. That is a custom of the land and later becomes really a custom in the law of God. She's not tried in her situation to be released from her engagement to marry a Canaanite man, which perhaps many would have done. And she's really more loyal to the family of Judah than he is because he doesn't even seem to be concerned about preserving an heir for his family name unless he's thinking of somehow getting a different wife for his son, Sheila which again is not mentioned here, but if he did that, that also would be dishonest and wrong. So her plan, desperate, dangerous, it involves deception. If she's found out, she could be sentenced to death. But in her thinking, this is the only way to correct this injustice and irresponsibility of Judah. So she exchanges her widow's clothing She puts on the attire of a prostitute, covers her face so that she can't be recognized, and puts herself uh, in a place where her profession would probably be easily recognized. Now, one wonders, did she somehow know Judah's proclivity to this possible arrangement? She had lived with them for a period of time, we don't know. We can only wonder. But uh, as the thing proceeds here, Judah falls into this trap. In verse fifteen, when Judah saw her again, there's that idea that that concept of seeing and the suggestion being of a sensuous nature. He thought she was a harlot because she covered her face, which was typical of that day. Then he turned to her by the way, again, he's turning out of the way to do this, and said, please let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And if he did, he, he very likely would not have done this. So the deception, really, on her part, was necessary to bring about her plan. And then she uh, asks him, well, what will you give me that you may come into me? He said, I'll send a young goat from the flock. So she said, okay, will you give me a pledge till you send it? And here's where her, I guess we could say her wisdom comes out. And what might happen in the future. And then he said, Well, what pledge shall I give you? So she said, Your signet and cord and your staff that's in your hand. Now, these were very important items of identity in that day. A signet was um, a little um, circular emblem that you hung around your neck by a cord. And it would have uh, writing on it. And if you. Rolled it out like on a, a a piece of clay or something, it would leave an imprint, and so it was a way of identifying yourself and maybe uh, making a promise or a pledge, and then the the staff as well would be identify would identify the owner by engraving on the top. So these were like uh, an ancient wallet where you would have something that would identify who you you are. So he promises to give that to her until he can uh, return uh, with the payment of the the kid of the goats. So after this is agreed to, he goes into her, they have a relationship, and she conceives. Now that was her plan all along. And of course, uh, uh, today we would view that Uh, not very well. And uh, she rose, she went away, she lays aside her veil, she puts on her garments of widowhood, and life continues. Uh, But then this whole situation is discovered. Now, another motif, as we think about this, appears that we find really running through the book of Genesis. Genesis. And that is this, that a person who deceives better look out because they're going to get deceived at some point in time. Okay, we saw that in the life of Jacob when he deceived his uh, father and his brother. Uh, Then we saw it when Jacob was deceived in Haran by his uncle Laban. And then later Jacob again is deceived by what his sons did to him and trying to make him believe that, that Joseph was dead. And the the major person involved in that deceit was his his son Judah. Judah has been deceptive, uh, not only in that way, but also in his promise to Tamar. And now the tables are turned. He's deceived by Tamar, and he's going to uh, get payback, so to speak, for that as well. Now, uh, it's interesting, again, that clothing... And a kid of the flock come into the deception in almost every single case. Now, as we have read this story, uh, Tamar is neither condemned nor condoned in the narrative except when Judah finds out. Now, these ancient customs are no longer enforced today, and we find them probably a bit strange. Uh, we don't hear about this kind of thing, and we don't act this way in the church today. But they even uh, allowed in that day a father-in-law to perform the levirate relationship if there were no sons. And Judah again would never have done this wittingly, knowingly, thus calling forth the deception. Tamar is elsewhere in scripture, put in a favorable light in Ruth 4, and also she is one of four non-Israelite women who end up in the heritage of the Messiah. One commentator made this interesting notation. It is not appropriate to judge her by Christian ethics, for in her culture at that time, her actions, though very dangerous for her, were within the law, not necessarily Mosaic law, but the law of the land. She had the right to have a child by the nearest of kin to her deceased husband. She played on the vice of Judah to bear his child, and her deception worked. And of course, we have seen that throughout these types of situations, the providence of God is always working behind the scenes and sometimes includes human foibles and failures and sins. So let's see how this all ends up. In verses 20 to 23, well, this is kind of, um, it's, a, it, it's ironic. It's ironic. Okay, Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend the Adullamite to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he didn't find her. Now, isn't that a little strange? How come he didn't go? Why didn't he do it himself, personally? Was he embarrassed? Did he not want to get caught or or look bad in in the society in which he lived? And then Adullam asked the men of that place, saying, Well, where's the harlot who was openly by the roadside? They said, There was no harlot in this place. So they weren't familiar with the situation either. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also, the men of the place said there was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, well, let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed. For I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. So I tried to do my part. She's not there. We're not going to search anymore because I don't want to be embarrassed that I got rolled by a prostitute. That's pretty much what the idea is here that he got deceived uh, and uh, taken, uh, his stuff was taken. So he's just going to let it lie uh, and and not be involved anymore at this point. Okay, so that brings us then to the next scene, verse 24. And here we have Tamar's desperate act resulting in her exoneration and Judah's confession. And the first thing that's revealed here is Judah's hypocrisy. Verse 24, it came to pass, as we would expect, about three months later that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has played the harlot. Furthermore, she's with child by harlotry. Well, obviously, uh, we all know that a woman who's going to have a child is going to show after a while that that's the case. Uh, for a man who's involved in that, responsibility, uh, that, that uh, action, well, he can avoid the responsibility because there's nothing to, to show in that way. But the woman's pretty much always stuck. Now, when Judah is told what happens here, he is self-righteously incensed because he says in that verse, Bring her out and let her be burned. Uh, that's a that's a pretty bad way to, to go, but that was uh, the case back in those times. But we remember that Tamar has wisely retained the tokens of her affair, and now she displays them in verse 25. When she was brought out for judgment, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong... I'm with child, you big hypocrite, in parentheses. And she said, please determine whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Well, she doesn't make an accusation, does she? She just presents the evidence like you would in a court of law, And she says, please determine who owns these because this person is the father. Well, that would bring it all out uh, in Judah's mind because nobody else could have these things uh, except for the person that he gave them to. So it's incontrovertible proof that Judah is the guilty party and everyone would have known it because of those items that were his, you know, identification But Judah's confession then exonerates Tamar's action. Look at verse 26. So Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Shelah, my son. And he never knew her again. Okay, so Judah really at this point comes to a crossroads and he does the right thing. He doesn't attempt to deny the evidence or defend himself. He immediately acknowledges that these belong to him and he then confesses that Tamar's action has been just. A more literal rending of what he says here Uh, doesn't give him any room for righteousness at all. She is righteous, not I. So it's not like I'm righteous, but she's more righteous. No, she's righteous, not I. So he exonerates her action, and he puts the blame on himself because he didn't keep his word. He was dishonest and deceitful. Uh, so that's the central issue of this whole thing. He withheld his son from leferet marriage uh, uh, responsibilities, and now uh, he has exonerated Tamar's action. This is, I think, a turning point in Judah's life, because you got to remember, this is 20, 22 years down the road, and this, uh, this is going to be the time, very near the time, when the famine comes. It might be the famine that takes him back to his family, and then they're going to go down into Egypt. So this leads right up to that period of time later on in the Joseph story. So he's going to return to his family, We're going to find he takes a leadership position, and later his attitude toward Joseph is going to be revealed, and he actually is willing to put his life on the line uh, to deliver one of his brothers. So the way of ridding yourself of worldly uh, corruption is through acknowledging and confessing your sin, and that's what Judah does, and we're going to see better things from him going down the road. Now, the last scene tells us what happens. And what we see here is the overruling providence of God in this whole relationship. Now, it came to pass at the time for giving birth that, behold, twins were in her womb. Okay, who else had twins? Well, Isaac and Rebekah. That's the only other place in the whole Bible where we have twins being born. And there are some similarities between these stories. And so it was when she was giving birth that one put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand. You know what Esau means? It means red. So there's a connection. The red string, identifying in the midwife's mind the firstborn. So to mark that, she she wraps it around his uh, hand. And she says, this one came out first. Well, then it happens, his hand goes back inside, and his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, how did you break through? This breach be upon you, therefore his name was called Perez, which means... Breakthrough or breach. And afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and they called his name Zerah. So just as uh, Jacob, the younger son, struggled through life to get all kinds of blessing, we see a similarity here because this little teeny baby is struggling not to come out Second, but to come out first. So the idea of the struggle there of the younger, supposed younger, with the elder is brought out in this story as well. So uh, the connection there is is pretty clear. But through this desperate and dangerous action of Tamar, the godly seed of Messiah is actually preserved. Preserved. And her name is found in the genealogy of Matthew along with Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. All four four of these women are non-Israelites, but in their stories, God uses them to, to preserve through their loyal actions the line of Messiah. And one day the corruption of the whole world will be redeemed by the sinlessly faithful life and self-sacrifice of Jesus, the Messiah, the promised seed of Abraham. So although there are often sordid things going on in the lives of the patriarchs, God can still use them uh, to fulfill his purposes. So let's learn a few things from what we've seen in this chapter. First of all, in the New Testament, John tells us, Love not the world, neither the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So every time we see a patriarch leave the place of promise without God's direction, we see spiritual decline. And the world is a corrupt place. It will corrupt a believer if we refuse to separate from it. Then we always have a responsibility to build up and help our fellow Christians, whether they're in our own family or in the family of, of the church. Onan and Judah miserably failed in putting others before themselves and doing the right thing for the sake of someone else. Then we ought to be willing to put ourselves in the place of danger to promote the program of God. Now, in the Old Testament, this sometimes involved doing what was seemingly wrong for the outcome of great good. For example, later on, the Hebrew midwives refused to kill the male children of Israel per the command of Pharaoh, and thus Moses was born and taken, uh, actually, into the very uh, courts of Pharaoh. Uh, Rahab lied in order to keep the Hebrew spies from being discovered in Jericho. Are those things condoned? No. Are they condemned? No but they're used for God's purposes to be carried forward. Now today, we don't use deceptive means to promote God's program, but we ought to be willing to stand up and be counted for Christ in the face of danger or persecution or whatever by the world and not try to escape it. Then we also see here that confession of sin is the only way to correct worldliness and waywardness. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And God must have done that because Judah begins changing from that point forward. And finally today, God's providence always ensures that his purpose and plan will be fulfilled. Even when his people step out of the way and experience the corruption of sin for a season, the Lord finds a way to draw them back. But of course, it's far better to be concerned to stay in his way in the first place and be a vessel that he can use to perform his will. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful again for the lessons we we learn from Scripture and from these Old Testament stories of the patriarchs. We realize, Lord, that they were far from perfect, as we are. Uh, Yet, Lord, you uh, use them for your uh, will, your purpose, your promises to be fulfilled. We know, Lord, that uh, some of the means that were used to obtain these things were uh, not uh, from the Christian perspective, holy, but we know that in your providence, you can still use those things uh, for your plan to be fulfilled. And we're thankful, Lord, that it doesn't really depend upon our goodness or our faithfulness as much as it does upon yours. So Lord, help us as we uh, go through life and uh, this world that we won't be drawn into its entrapments, that we won't be lured into Uh, into uh, its ways, but will stand separate for the Lord and be people who can be used to fulfill your purposes. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. (laughs)